Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we hear from the historian and journalist Rose George, one of our favourite correspondents who has appeared on a previous episode on the fascinating history of fishwives. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, please do so. Make the time and take the time. It's an extraordinary story of politics, shipwreck and female power. Today, we're talking about another little study aspect of the history of fishing, the fishing trawlers who were turned into the Royal Naval Patrol Reserve in both world wars to clear the seas of mines and even to take on the U-boats. They became known as Harry Tate Navy. Exactly why they were known as Harry Tate Navy, I shall leave you to discover in the interview. But all you need to know for now is that this is a tale of ordinary, everyday fishermen taking their ordinary, everyday fishing boats out to face the horror of professional killers at sea. It's a tale of unimaginable bravery. And it even includes the story of a trawler's cat whose crew were so concerned about his safety that they made him his very own life jacket out of an inflated condom. Enough from me. Time to hand over to someone who can tell this tale with real elan. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoy talking with her. Here is the excellent Rose George. Rose, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, so you, you, you sent me an email and you said you've come across this wonderful story um, of fishermen fighting, uh, fighting the Germans in U-boats, Harry Tate's Navy. So how did you come across this? Um, I actually can't remember. <laughs> I think just in my general trawls. I, I, They're all the best ones. <laughs> I go down all sorts of wormholes and tangents and I just must have come across... I didn't even come across it as Harry Tate's Navy at first. I think I just came across, uh, I think I was looking at how fishing um, survived during the wars uh, and yeah. then eventually, well, not eventually, quite quickly discovered that it was quite difficult because most of the trawlers had been requisitioned and turned into fighting fishing trawlers. And so, of course, at that point, I was like, what? <laughs> and I had no <laughs> idea about this, even though for my shipping book, I had looked at the Merchant Navy and I got very, very passionate about how the Merchant Navy was 
pretty much uh, unappreciated for its role during the war and they weren't even given a medal till I think the late 1980s and you know just appalling unfairness and I thought well how on earth didn't I know that most many 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 fishermen ended up in both world wars being requisitioned into the Royal Navy as their own kind of Navy and um, yeah so it's been a, these these few weeks have been quite a revelation. Yeah, so it's it a story that needed to be put right, which I think is the the foundations for all good stories. Exactly. Yes, and there yeah. there is there is stuff about this, and there are books about Harry Tate's Navy, and they were also called Churchill's Pirates and um, uh, the Lilliput Navy. But I think Harry Tate's Navy is the name that really stuck. And yeah. um, Who, who's Harry Tate? Let's let's fill in people on who Harry Tate is. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Harry Tate was a Scottish uh, comedian, sort of musical entertainer. And it's it's uh, it was started off as a bit of a uh, as a mockery, um, depending on who you read. Uh, it came from the Royal Navy towards this Royal Navy uh, patrol service or in the First World War, the Royal Navy Reserve trawler section. So Harry Tate was a comedian who was known for being kind of quite crap at modern life. Mm. So he was known for being really struggling with any kind of modern contraption. And his most famous sketch was he had a motor car that just fell apart around him. <laughs> so in the obviously in the first, I think the name first was uh, applied in the in the First World War. And it, you can understand where it came from because a lot of these fishing trawlers, some of them were wooden. I mean, they were old, they were cranky, they were, the, you know, the accommodation was appalling, um, and they were really rough and ready uh, fighting vessels. And so, obviously, this name was applied to them. Uh, but the Royal Navy uh, Reserve uh, in the First World War and the Royal Navy Patrol Service in the Second World War took the name and went with it because they just ah. said, they were like, okay, you know, we're not the Royal Navy. We're better than the Royal Navy. And yeah. um, so they, this name, Harry Tate's Navy, stuck. So they embraced the kind of the, the bumbling nature of it. But that bumbling nature kind of disguises incredible bravery and um, and remarkable service. So this this whole business of requisitioning fishing boats began in the First World War, yeah? It actually began before that. It was a very foresighted admiral um, who in 1907 suddenly had he was uh, he commanded the Channel Fleet in 1907, um, Lord Beresford. And he suddenly had this uh, quite genius idea that if trawlers can trawl for fish, why can't they trawl for mines or or, or submarines in, in later days? But his idea was initially to uh, get a couple of trawlers and try them as experimental minesweepers. So <laughs> they were used to trawling gear along below the water. Uh, and all they had to do was switch the fishing gear for minesweeping gear, which was eventually essentially uh, a cable that would trap the mooring cable that held the mines in place underwater um and so this the experiment was a success and uh this, the that became the became the start of the mine sweeping trawlers her majesty's trawler hmt 
makes you wonder what the, uh, the fishermen thought about it because it does sound quite dangerous. So someone suggested that rather than um, trawling for hake, they had to trawl for explosives. I'm not sure I'd have been very happy about that. Well, I mean, it was extremely dangerous and the, the casualty uh, and the death toll of fishermen uh, in both world wars and of trawlers, the losses of trawlers was appalling. And in fact, in the Second World War, more trawlers and fishing vessels were lost than uh, in any other branch of the Royal Navy. So, yeah, absolutely huge sacrifice, but there was no shortage of volunteers. Um, so mm. a lot of fishermen had already were already in the sort of Royal Naval Reserve. So they would get three weeks annual training. And then when it came when it came to war, they were called up. Um, and then then there were other volunteers. But of course, it made perfect sense because these, these were men who were extremely tough, worked in pretty appalling conditions on these vessels. Um, and were used to navigating difficult seas and extreme hardship. So they were perfect for minesweeping because it was it was extremely dangerous. But uh, they were they knew how to navigate the ships. They they understood water and they understood currents. And they were they were kind of perfect minesweepers. Yeah, and it obviously invested in making those waters safe for themselves. Exactly. So uh, there were still fishing um, activities during both world wars. And in fact, at one point during the, sec- the first world war, sorry, um, the there was a, an order that went out to uh, officially requisition the actual fishing fleet that was still fishing. Because the, and one of the reasons apparently was that they were making too much money <laughs> because they had such, you know, they had a monopoly, even though their fishing grants had been vastly reduced because of all the mines. Um, I mean, thousands upon thousands of mines were laid. On both sides, although you generally in the stuff that I read, you only hear about the German mines. Um, but uh, so, yeah, they were requisitioned. And then in the Second World War, there were still trawlers operating out of the East Coast and Fleetwood became a pretty popular fishing centre. But obviously their fishing grounds were tiny compared to before the war. But um, what kept them going was was a remarkable fact in the Second World War was that fish and chips was never rationed. <laughs> That's my new favourite fact about the Second World War. I didn't know that. Yeah, so the so people needed fish, and although there were imports of fish, um, fish and chips were never rationed. Um, it was seen uh, to be t- just too much of an insult to the great p- British public to ration their fish and chips. Mm. There is a wonderful book about the politics of the fish and chip industry, which I read in the British Library and absolutely loved. Um, so yeah, so they needed fish. So there were fishers, but they were they were older men and in extreme, you know, the worst the worst vessels probably because, and and they were they were sunk, they were shot at, uh, they were shot at from the air. The submarines went after them. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible time. Where was this geographically? Is it all around the UK or in certain yeah. waters more than others? Um, well, the North Sea during the Second World War was mostly closed except for a few miles. Um, but they were fishing off uh, sort of in the in the North Sea, further north, off Orkney and Shetland, and a lot of casualties up there. A lot of because the uh, in both world wars, uh, the uh, enemy regarded fishing vessels as fair game, and uh, so they were targeted. And of course, the armed ones were definitely targeted. Yeah, how were they armed? Um, they were given. Um, let me see. I don't know if I can pronounce this right. An early con gun. So right. a really an early con. Yeah. 
I think I'm saying that right. I don't I, know. I'm not sure. Erdogan, I'm not sure either. Orlikon. <laughs> anyway, a big, a big gun, a very big gun, and then um, they were given a six pounder gun, which is a kind of huge cannon kind of thing. Um, they had Lewis guns. They had machine guns. They had obviously r- rifles, but um, they, I mean, they were just fishermen mostly. The crew were fishermen, and they were suddenly expected to be militarily trained and they had about two or three weeks training so one of the other nicknames for in the second world war for harry tate's navy was uh that if you were in harry tate's navy you were a sparrow and that was because um it was considered within the royal navy that fishermen were just too rough and ready to go through naval discipline and they wouldn't accept it which was probably true um so they weren't put within the royal navy's usual training system and they were given their own training ground in Lowestoft uh, which was a former pleasure garden kind of theatre establishment called Sparrow's Nest Uh, and that was turned into the Royal Navy Patrol Service training ground and so if you went through there you were a sparrow. Oh, fascinating. Um, I'd love to know what that training actually involved. We've talked about the um, about them trawling for mines. How did they deal with the U-boat threat? So some of them were equipped with an ASDIC which was a an early sonar, um, a pretty good sonar. And so you would have an ASDIC operator. So some of the training, you would have been trained in ASDIC uh, operation. Um, um, some of them would have been trained in in um, firing at the mines that were, were found. I know you want to talk about submarines, but um, how they dealt with the mines was really interesting because they... I didn't realize this and found it extraordinary. So they, if they managed to get a mine to float to the surface, which they often did, by catching the the, the 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 by, cable that's anchoring it, to by the, catching the yeah. cable, by cutting the cable, actually. Right, so okay. they had cutters on there. Um, so the I don't mine sorry, hang on. Yeah, the mines themselves they have uh, cables attached to anchors. Yes, so they, so they have not... mooring cables, so right, they are okay. moored, but. Um, the minesweeping system would cut through these. Ideally, what would happen is the trawler would go forward or the drifter, because uh, they also had drifter um, boats as well uh, requisitioned. So it would go forward, you would cut the cable, the mine would float to the surface at a safe distance from the ship. <laughs> you hope. <laughs> you hope, and sometimes it didn't, and lots of oh, trawlers oh. just went up or yeah. down. Apparently you either went straight up or you straight down. Um and then the mine would float to the surface. And if you you can picture it, it, it's like one of those cartoon mines that you see, you know, with horns on. Yeah. And then the way that they got rid of these dangerous mines was they shot at them. So <laughs> you just had a bunch of fishermen, mostly, not always, but a bunch of fishermen with rifles or machine guns just shooting at this floating mine. Yeah. And that was how they were made safe, was by exploding them. Um. Which makes sense. I mean, you can't carry it away, can you? And you could. We don't. It's not like today where you can send a remote device and 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 make it safe. But um, so this was the best method. And you, I I've read various reports of how successful this was because I've read some that say, oh yeah, we were really good at it and we shot. We, you know, but you had to hit a horn. You couldn't hit just hit the base of. So <laughs> so imagine you're on a moving trawler, perhaps yeah. in pretty crappy weather. Yeah. So you're you're pitching and heaving oh. and rolling and the sea is moving, the mine is moving, yeah, because it's bobbing, and you've got men just trying to shoot at a tiny target on on this this mine, um, just an, an absolute barrage. And and one account I read was like, 
I'm sure they they um this uh veteran said I'm uh I'm sure we we didn't actually hit any of them but some of them we probably machine gunned them and filled them with so much lead that they probably sank <laughs> too heavy <laughs> but um yeah so that's how they dealt with mines the submarines obviously they would try and get them um with the sonar and uh, in the first world war it was extraordinary they did actually catch them in their nets so they actually catch so there were some drifters which had drift nets right. which could have been two miles long which were obviously usually used to catch fish but wow. you could catch a, sub, a submarine in it two miles long i'd no two miles idea long. and how yeah. how deep were they do we know that no. No, I don't know that. Deep enough no. to catch a submarine. Deep enough to, so you catch a sub in your net, and and um, and and well, I mean that must surely endanger the vessel itself, and and possibly lead well, to. Well, if the... it's two miles long, then hopefully it's a mile behind you. But yeah. um, I I'm mean, worried about it getting dragged down. Uh, I don't. That could have happened. I don't think I only tend to read about the success stories. So. Oh. <laughs> there, was, there was a recent story in the press um, about a tra- something happened to a trawler, and there was some there was some suspicion that, that it had actually it had done that. It had caught a. This is a recent story that it had caught a, a caught a. Something. Yeah, the the, the Bugger led the Bugger led bridge. Um, it was a fr- it was a French trawler. Yeah, and there was a, there was a court case recently about. I mean, it's been a long on long going court case, and uh, the family and the campaigning organization are convinced that it was caught in a submarine yeah um uh, well, but a sub got caught was... in its gear and then dragged it down yeah um which is not implausible but um the royal navy denies any uh involvement and there was a court case that found that the royal navy was not involved but the family are still convinced that that's what happened because the yeah. trawler just went down yeah rapidly. For no mm. rapidly for no apparent reason this is something we should explore more, Rose. We're going to come back into the, the more sort of U-boats v trawlers. So, yep. um, so these drifters with these two-mile nets, you could catch a sub. But what do you do next? What happens when you've caught a sub? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you try and sink it. So then they would probably uh, chuck over a load of. So they also carried depth charges. Right. I forgot to mention that amongst their arm- armaments. So they would just throw over a load of depth charges, try and get the sub to. I guess come to the surface that would be the uh, ideal and surrender ideally but of course the U-boats in both world wars were not interested in being captured because they didn't want their equipment to be captured uh, and so they would try and they would try and sink them mm. um, I, I think I mean there were U-boats captured in the second world war but um, there was a very famous case of um, in the second world war of, the, of a fishing trawler called the Lady Shirley which uh didn't sort of capture but then the crew managed to sink it a u u111 um quite an extraordinary uh achievement for a kind of small i mean i mean the the it was so disproportionate there was there were instances of um fishing trawlers uh with a crew of eight and a dog who managed to who went into battle against a a light armed cruiser with 800 men on board. I mean, wow. or 300 men or something. Um, and they didn't win, but they were, they also weren't, weren't destroyed. They managed to escape. The dog died a few days later though. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change needing health insurance. United healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Talk. It, it, it's interesting you do talk about the dogs um we we have an episode on where i spoke to the lady who runs the museum of maritime pets so for yes. all of our listeners out there if you haven't listened to that episode do listen to it have you ever come across any other uh, tales of of animals on these trawlers well i do have um yes i do have a a file in my database called durex cat <laughs> okay so the durex cat um so fishermen fishermen are known for being superstitious Um, But they do like to have animals on board, not pigs, but they will have dogs and cats and and pigeons are also good luck. So I read this account of um, the Jurex cat was uh, a a trawler that had a black cat on board, which was considered very lucky. Um, But once when they were due to sail, they all stepped onto the jetty at Harwich and refused to go to sea because they couldn't find the cat. And the cat was eventually found lying under a sack of potatoes, nearly flattened, but otherwise unharmed. And off they went to sea. But at sea, um, they realised that all the crew wore life belts, but the cat didn't have one. And so these these hardened, tough fishermen felt very sorry for the cat because obviously they were all operating in conditions of extreme danger. So one of the seamen got a Durex, blew it up and tied it around the cat's neck. It looked so funny but we got used to it and the cat went around like that for months. <laughs> <laughs> months. God, poor cat. Months. And I do have another, uh, I have a bird story, which is quite extraordinary. So during the First World War, there were two Victoria Crosses awarded to skippers. So within the, the Navy, uh, because uh, there was they, they weren't given naval ranks, these fishermen, but a, a rank was created for them, which was skipper which was thought to me a more fishing appropriate rank, and it was equivalent to a warrant officer. So skipper Thomas Crisp, who had been a herring skipper uh, from Lowestoft, um, on the 15th of August 1917 was in charge of the armed fishing smack Nelson. Um, And uh, they were engaged in fishing when they were attacked by an enemy submarine. Um, And obviously, disproportionate uh, encounter. So the, they were shelled horribly. And Thomas Crisp, who was at the helm, was cut in half, essentially, Ooh. disemboweled, uh, nearly disemboweled uh, by a shell that hit him directly. 
But he carried on at the helm, and also he managed to um, he managed to send off a message, an urgent message, which read Nelson being attacked by submarine, skipper killed. And remember, this is the skipper sending that message. Skipper killed, Jim Howe Bank, which is where they were, send assistance at once. And I read this and thought, oh, he must have sent a radio message or the telegraphist must have sent it or they must have. And then I found another account and it turned out that the Nelson, like many trawlers at the time in the, in the First World War, had no radio. So he actually sent this urgent message by carrier pigeon. Ah. They had four carrier pigeons. Uh, only one got there, and the one that got there was called Redcock. Right. <laughs> and he arrived, and, and the message was transmitted. Meanwhile, Skipper Thomas Chris sadly died, um, even though he didn't on on his vessel. Even though he had insisted that the crew throw him overboard, that was his last wish, and they'd refused oh. quite rightly. Uh, so he died. His son was actually also on the on the uh, Nelson, and so he died in his son's arms. Extraordinary man, um, but also an extraordinary pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, after, and in fact, after the war, Red Cock was um, so celebrated that when he died, he was stuffed and put in a lower stuff museum. Ah, it's still there today? Not sure. I think he's been moved. Right. I, I haven't quite located Red Cock, but uh, and I don't quite. I can't remember what happened to Durex Cat either. But um, okay. I do. I do have those two in my sights. It should be in the RNLI museum, stuffed with a, with still with the, the the condom around its neck. I think I'd should like to, yeah, I'd like to see that. Um, so going back to these fishermen, were they were they recognised for their courage and their bravery at the time? They were actually. They were treated pretty well. So not only did they have their own sparrows nest training ground, um, but they were also very early on in 1939. Um, the reason they were called Churchill's pirates is because Churchill was quite fond of these minesweepers. Obviously, he understood why you needed minesweepers, because uh, not just to protect shipping, but also food supply and everything. Um, so very early on in 1939, he, he, Churchill realized that they didn't have, they didn't have a badge. So he created one for them. Um, and uh, the silver, so it's called the silver badge. It's only for men who've done six months at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite a, it's quite an interesting looking badge. It's got a it's got a shark on it being pierced by a spike, which right. <laughs> is supposed to symbolise a submarine. And and the men of the um, RN uh, PS, the patrol service, were extremely proud of this, and they wore it. As for the rest of their uniform, that was a bit more haphazard. So you had all these gnarly fishermen coming with their ganzies and their their, their sweaters. Their oily sweaters and and their fear naught trousers and their oilskins and their caps and and it was just a bit of a mishmash. But they were given a bit of leeway, I think, unless they had a senior officer on their vessel where they had to wear white, which they thought very little of. Um, they tend to be they tended to be left as they were kind of a navy within navy. That's how they were known. So they were kind of left to their own device because they were so fundamental and so brave. Um, yeah, they were they were valued. I wonder if they have a memorial. They do have a memorial at Lowestoft, um, but it's a memorial only to the two thousand five hundred or so men who were lost at sea. So, uh, but actually, overall in the Second World War, it was about fifteen thousand. Wow, um, fifteen thousand were lost at sea, and about the numbers vary, but between three hundred and four hundred 
trawlers um, and drifters, fishing vessels, were lost, which makes it gives it the highest casualty rate per uh, proportionately yeah. of any other anyone anything in the navy. It makes you also realise the kind of huge expanse of, of of people out there who 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 survived and also experienced it. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, of course, you know, as time goes on, a lot of them have died. So there is a Royal Naval Patrol Service Association, which is still going. It tends to be now the kind of children of uh, relatives of um, veterans. There aren't that many veterans left, uh, sadly. Um, but there are oral histories and you can. But it tends to be it's a strange thing that um, much of what I've found so far uh, tends to be the non-fishing crews because they were mixed they weren't all entirely fishing crews so you would get um reserve people who came and volunteered from civil service you know from civilian life you get bank clerks and whatever um and it tends to be those who who contribute their memories in what i've found so far that's interesting i wonder um, if that's an education thing or if that is more to do with people having a kind of jaw-dropping, life-altering experience. Um, I'm not saying it it wasn't for the fishermen, but they were used to going on their boats and they were used to going fishing. But if you've got uh, people who are going to sea for the first time, then they might yes. want to record it, yeah. Yes, you're right. Um, that, that's a good theory. I, my, my theory was that they just went back to sea mm. after the war and they just went fishing and they were probably quite hard to get hold of. Yeah, but, but who knows? I will look into that a bit more. But yeah, it is it is funny the accounts that I read. Um, there is an absolute uh, gulf between the fishermen. Um, mostly, this is not entirely accurate, but the fishermen who don't get seasick, and the people who've come from land jobs who absolutely suffer terribly, yeah. to the point where when they're on watch, they have to have a bucket next to them and. And they I mean, have to moan, moan about it to themselves in the form of writing. Yes, but but you know it's it's a horrible affliction, seasickness. I have awful seasickness, yeah, and um, really should not be doing anything to do with <laughs> fishing boats or going to sea. But um, but yeah, I mean it's a small bit of bravery, but to carry on when you're feeling that woeful, I think you know we should salute that as well. I think we've touched on something interesting here, and it is the question of who records their experiences on board any ship and why. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm still this is ongoing research, so I probably haven't yet found the fisherman, but I'm sure that I'm sure there are accounts are out there somewhere. Brilliant. Well, Rose, thank you very much indeed for sharing this brilliant story with us. You're very welcome. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please don't leave your interaction with our brilliant podcast here. There is so much more you can do. Firstly, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel, where you will find a library of the most extraordinarily innovative videos showcasing the maritime past in entirely new ways. Who could ever forget our use of artificial intelligence and digital artistry to bring ships' figureheads back to life? Or the clever animation of an eyewitness account of the Battle of Tsushima. Also, please check out our ever-growing back catalogue of audio episodes. If you enjoyed listening to Rose, please listen to her episode on Fishwives. And if you're interested in the Second World War, we've got plenty for you to listen to. And a forthcoming episode on Hitler's curious relationship with the Kriegsmarine, which is well worth listening to. 
This pod comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So please check out what both of those institutions are up to. The SNR you can find at snr.org.uk where you can join up and please do so. And the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation is at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and be sure to check out their amazing new project Maritime Innovation in Miniature filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. It is jaw-dropping.